Beloved, our worship turns to the preaching and hearing of the Word of God, and I invite you to join me in Luke 14 this morning. We uh, begin a new chapter. Our text this morning is Luke chapter one or 14, verses 1 through 14. And uh, as you're turning there, let's go to the Lord one more time in prayer and ask Him to bless our time together. Father, um, our singing, our giving, our fellowship is all geared toward this. It's the, the center of our worship. It is coming to hear your voice through your word. We have just sung, uh, I, I think of you all the day long. And, and Father, I pray that we could live as though that's not a lie because that, that's more of a, a statement of aspiration more than fact. And I think we, if we looked ourselves in the mirrors, could all say that. We aspire to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. <laughs> Father, we, we need you and we need to realize your grace and mercy upon us. We need to re- recognize how awesome you are. And so, Father, I pray you will ready our spirits right now that, uh, that we might act on what you had revealed to us and make us into those with a sincere, fervent, obedient faith and glorify yourself through us and this church. This is our prayer. We are not worthy of your mercy. We are not worthy of your grace. We ask for it anyway. We come to your throne and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. Let's read what the Bible says. Let's read what the Word of God says. It happened that when he, Jesus, went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guest. And when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man, and then in disgrace you will proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise they may invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. (coughs) 
One of my great frustrations as a pastor, as one whom God has called to preach and teach His Word, and and one of the greatest frustrations of any pastor who earnestly pursues faithfulness and and, and you know, faithfulness to God and faithfulness to His Word is that no matter how much you study, no matter how attentive the audience is, no matter how captivating a speaker might be, or how you might have felt you nailed the sermon or, or whatever, there's always the competition. I get you in this setting for about 35 minutes a week. And it's twice that if you come on Wednesday nights. And it's not enough. I want more because of the competition. By the grace of God, as far as I know and understand it, I, I've always preached the truth up here. I'll, I'll preach the truth up here today by the grace of God. And I will, by the grace of God again, preach the truth every time He gives me the chance to. But there's too much competition out there. Six days and about 22 hours a week, you're out there in the world, you're in your homes, you're in your workplaces, you're wherever you might be, bombarded with competing worldviews, bombarded with competing standards of authority, authority which is not the Word of God, the vast majority of it. And that's because false teachers are everywhere and false teaching is everywhere. We don't always think of these competing things as false teaching, but they are. For example, at the top of the Christian bestseller list for what's been a couple of years now is a book in which the author claims she's writing things that Jesus said to her in conversation and devotions and such. Jesus Calling is, in my opinion, an egregious offense in how it goes beyond Scripture and it's dangerous in how it influences those who read it who may want a deeper relationship with God, not to look at what God has revealed, but what He might reveal to them subjectively, personally. So the Word of God then becomes subjective to us. You know, it, What did He say to you? Well, then what did He say to you? Well, then what did He say to you? That's, that's a recipe for disaster. What did He say? But it sells... Things that take us away from, from what is revealed sell. And, and one of my great frustrations is that if you go into a life way, you're going to see an entire section of this book and things like it. And that's because false teachers are everywhere. False teaching is everywhere. The most popular television preacher won't say that Mormons believe a different gospel or that Muslims will be condemned to hell unless they repent and believe in the gospel. Joel Osteen never preaches about sin. He never preaches about repentance. He does preach about your self-esteem. He does preach about how you might feel better and become a better you, as one of his books says. Or as another book is titled, Realize the Power of I Am. And, and I am in that statement is not I am who I am, the name of God. It is you yourself. And that's because false teachers are everywhere. False teaching is everywhere. Another popular television preacher and writer denies the Bible's teaching on God as Trinity. He believes that when the Father is the Father, He is not the Son. When He is the Son, He is not the Spirit. T.D. Jakes is what, you, uh, what is called a modalist. And that God takes on different modes at different times. He's the Father at one time, He's the Son at another time. 
that is a denial of Scripture. It is a denial of what Scripture clearly teaches about the triune God. That God exists as one God in three distinct persons who are always eternal, always all-powerful, always everything God is. And that's because false teachers are everywhere and false teaching is everywhere. And I could keep going long past supper time tonight and probably for much longer giving you the state of affairs on my opinions on things and what the Bible says about some of this stuff. I'll spare you more because that's you know that's not a popular thing to do. First off, it, it's even though I'm I'm called to to refute those who contradict in, in Titus one nine. That's why I say these things this morning. I'm to, we're to hold fast to sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. We should be able to call out false teachers. It's not a popular thing to do. It's not the type of preaching and teaching that's going to send you home with a warm fuzzy feeling. Because it, it seems we've been conditioned in the church, and I don't just say that about Bethlehem, I say that about the church in general. Uh, you know, we don't want to have to think about who's right and who's wrong. J. Gresham Machen, uh, Machen I'm, I'm mispronouncing that, was a, a theologian who lived a, a century ago. And a century ago, he was battling liberal theologians who were abandoning the Word of God by the truckload. And he said, A Christianity without argument is not the Christianity of the New Testament. A Christianity without argument is not the Christianity of the New Testament. And I bring all that up this morning to say that's exactly what we see once again with crystal clarity in Luke 14. Jesus walks into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, and he does it on the Sabbath, no less, to eat bread, to eat a meal. And let's remember who the Pharisees were. They were there were different sects within Judaism. We could go over the Sadducees and the Zealots and, and whatnot again, and we won't do that today. I want to focus on what the Scripture here focuses on. And the Pharisees, they weren't elite in that they held the great positions of power. They weren't the high priest. But they were very popular with the common people in Israel. They, 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 they preached a, a message. They, they were very devout. We, we, could, we could say one of the good things about them was they were very devout about the law of Moses. They wanted to make sure that the law of Moses was kept strictly. For that, in one respect, we could commend them. Except to say this... They were equally, if not more, committed to the extra-biblical traditions and regulations that had been added on to the law of Moses in the centuries prior to Jesus' birth and ministry. And we've seen this before. This is not new to you if you've been following us in Luke. And In Luke, as in other Gospels, Jesus has many run-ins with the Pharisees already. They are among those who don't like Him. They are among those who are conspiring to destroy Him. And so, even with that being the case, we see in verse 1 here, Jesus going into the house of one of their leaders. And we aren't told what kind of leader. It could be that He was a leader in the synagogue. It could be that He was a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was that ruling council of the Jews. We, we aren't told specifically what kind of leader he was, but 
what we do know is that it was on the Sabbath. And so since it was on the Sabbath, we're talking about the midday meal. We're talking about after the morning gathering at the synagogue. And we are talking, if it's a Pharisee, it's probably a meeting of kind of elite Pharisees, if there was such a thing. Kind of the people who had influence, the the Pharisees who were held in high esteem, the scribes in the area who were held in high esteem. And this is why, because Pharisees were always very careful about not associating with those who would make them look bad. Pharisees were always very careful about not associating with those who would make them look bad. Um, We see this throughout the New Testament. We see this throughout the Gospels. They don't like the fact that Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. They don't like the fact that Jesus would have anything to do with them at all. They would only commiserate and, and for an event like this, only those invited would be those who would be of equal status or those who could potentially elevate them to an even higher status. That is the mindset of the typical Pharisee. And so you have to wonder, why would they invite Jesus to lunch? Well, that becomes apparent as we read this, because at the end of verse 1 it says, they were watching Him closely. And it doesn't just mean that they were watching Him like maybe you're, you got your eyes on me right now, or maybe you don't, but you've got your eyes on me, you're watching me. They were Lurking, They were spying. They were on the lookout. They wanted to trap him. They were seeking to, to, to get Jesus. They wanted him there. They wanted him to act. They wanted him to violate the Sabbath. These so-called holy people wanted him to violate the Sabbath, or rather, I should say, they wanted him to violate their strict Sabbath regulations because there's a difference. There was a man there, and it says he was suffering from dropsy. We don't use that word a lot these days. The more common thing that we use to describe what this man had was an edema. Uh, It's a common word now, uh, edema. It's a condition in which the body retains fluids, and it causes extreme swelling. It can happen the heart, the liver, the lungs, all over the place. But, But that's beside the point. The point is that because of this man's condition, the rabbis, the Pharisees, considered this man... His condition was a judgment from God because of his immorality. That's the way they viewed this man with dropsy. In Leviticus 15, 1 through 3, they knew what the law of Moses said about this man's condition. It says there that a man's discharge is unclean and that if the body obstructs the discharge, that uncleanness stays in him. So that makes him unclean. That means he's not fit for for worship, he's not fit for the ritual, the rituals, and all the things that go along with being a good Jew. He's not fit, which makes you question. By the way, why is he invited to this lunch? Well, that becomes clear because they view this man as defiled, and they put him right in front of Jesus to set Jesus up. This is how twisted the Pharisees were. This is how twisted false teachers are, as they asserted they were following God as they believed maybe that they were even following God, maybe they had convinced themselves they were, they wanted Jesus to heal this man because in their minds, because he would be breaking the Sabbath in their minds, that's what would prove he was not from God. If Jesus were to break the Sabbath in their minds, it would prove he's not from God, even if he healed the guy. 
That's absurd. But that's how twisted false teaching is. It will take the Word of God and it will twist it and we see it happening all over the place in the world today. All over the place around the church today and sometimes and oftentimes tragically in churches. That's why every Christian needs to be having their eyes open and their ears open and their Bibles open at all times. That's why we prayed earlier, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation of all the day. That needs to be our life. That needs to be our pursuit, beloved. Otherwise, we may fall prey to thinking like a Pharisee here. Because what happened? Their foolish heart was darkened. That's how Paul puts it in Romans one twenty one. Uh, here they have God in the flesh, who's already done more than enough to prove who He is, and yet they're accusing Him of, of working with Satan, working with the devil. Here's how hypocritical these so-called teachers of the law were. In wanting to ruin Jesus, they actually wanted Him to disobey God. In wanting to ruin Jesus, they wanted Him to disobey God. And today, false teachers do much the same thing. They don't tell you that, because Satan's the father of lies. But what, what happens with false teaching is, they want to twist this. They want to twist God's Word. Maybe they'll use it. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll say they believe it and don't, won't even talk about what it says throughout their whole message. Too many people like that today. But they, what they're trying to do is to get you not to realize how important this is. Not to realize how important, how vital, how, how important to living the Word of God is for you. So instead, they try to get you to a place where the Scriptures aren't sufficient for you anymore. They're never going to just repudiate the Bible. What they're going to do is they're going to say, this on top of the Bible, much like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Adding the regulations on top of what God had actually said about the Sabbath. It's a dangerous place, beloved, whenever we don't recognize the Word of God is sufficient. Well, Jesus saw through this like Swiss cheese. And he answered, it says, he answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. So what happens here is they were trying to trap him, but instead he traps them. They knew Jesus would heal this man. No doubt they had heard he had healed on the Sabbath before. We've seen him heal on the Sabbath before in Luke, Luke 6. You can go back and read that after lunch today. They knew he could. They knew he probably would. And of course he did. But before he did, he, he put it to them. Because it was not a violation of the Sabbath and it, to, to, to minister to someone who is suffering. There, there's nothing in the Torah. There's nothing in the law. There's nothing in the Old Testament at all that says you can't minister to someone who's suffering even on the Sabbath day. There's nothing, no Old Testament regulations that prevent that. But the point is, the, the things they had come up with, the man-made stuff, the man-made traditions, the man-made views that had piled on in the centuries after they'd come back from exile in Babylon. We're talking about 500 years worth of adding on to the Word of God. They wouldn't let someone do anything like this. So they were very zealous about man's words, man's traditions, man's views, and they essentially held them above God's word. 
So they would be mad not because Jesus was violating the Word of God, but violating their words, their opinions. And that's how it is in the world today too. That's how it is when Christians act on their convictions instead of the prevailing wisdom of the world. So Jesus' question back to them then puts them in a quandary because if they answer back to Jesus that it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath, they can't condemn Jesus for breaking the Sabbath. But if they say it's not lawful to heal, it might in their minds keep Jesus from doing the healing and they still won't be able to condemn him. And that's what they most want. They want to condemn Jesus. And that's what's at the heart of all false teachers, even when they don't admit it. They couldn't answer either way and get the result they wanted, so they kept silent. So Jesus acts on his own. We see that he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. He does what he needs to do with this man and sends him on his way. And now he's going to focus on the people in the room again. Jesus, no doubt, was angry at the hardness of their hearts. But he had compassion on the one suffering. He was not unclean to Jesus. He was not to be cast away to Jesus. Jesus was not going to use this man to elevate himself. He was going to minister to this man to elevate him. And so Jesus healed him and sent him away. And then just in case the Pharisees were smiling because they thought they'd won because Jesus did heal him, he poses another question. Which one of you will have a son or ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? Because if they, of course they would pull out their son if he fell into a well on the Sabbath day. Of course they would, uh, the ox would be a huge financial investment. Of course they would pull an ox out of a well on the Sabbath day. In fact, if we go back to the last chapter, Luke 13, verse 15, uh, and we saw this just a few weeks ago, they kept their animals tied up and led them to water on the Sabbath day. They took them there themselves so that they wouldn't fall into the well. They led them. They would not let their animals drown, but they would let this man with this problem Drown in his own fluids. And that was the hypocrisy. And Jesus exposed it. And they could make no reply to this. And that's what we need to be doing, beloved. Jesus, the Word of God says, don't listen, don't give credence to false teachers, but rather expose them. It's not just a pastor's job to do that either. It's every Christian's job to expose false teachers, to expose false teaching, to expose false worldviews, to not run cover for them, to not make excuses for false teaching, to not justify dangerous teaching by, and we hear this so much, pointing to all the good things they do. Beloved, the Pharisees could do all the good they wanted. They could be commended for how much they wanted to keep the law, but for all of that, unless they repented of their self-righteousness and trusted in God's true revelation, the Word of God only, and the Word made flesh that was before them, unless they did that, they would die in their sins. And today, false teachers and those who believe false teachers will die in their sins unless the truth is exposed to their hearts and they accept it and repent and believe in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus has no patience for lies. So not only did Jesus not fall for their trap, but now it was going to get even worse for them. He tells them a story. He uses a parable to both castigate them in their pride and illustrate that they've got to humble themselves. What does he do? He noticed how the invited guests at this meal were picking out the places of honor at the table. It's like people who, when they go to an event and the doors open, they run to get the seats. Yeah, I went to a pastor's conference about a, a decade ago where everyone was eager to get a good seat. And it was really something to see a bunch of pastors, as soon as the door opened, run like kids to find the best seats. Because the sanctuary was going to be packed. No one wanted to be stuck in the overflow section. Everyone wanted to be... And, and, and pastors do this too, just so you know. But, but it's absurd. You know, they're running or they're doing that fast walk so they can get there quickly but not look like they're running. It's ridiculous. And that's what these invited guests were doing, making sure they had the best spots at the table, the places of honor. You want the place of honor. And it's that type of mentality, it's that type of behavior that would later drive Jesus to say about these people, they love the place of honor and banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues. See, Jesus knew what sometimes we forget. That they wanted to look righteous, but not be righteous. They wanted to look holy, but don't actually be holy. So many false teachers, you know, they want to appear to be teaching righteousness rather than actually teach righteousness. Appear to teach holiness rather than actually teach holiness. And for that matter, many false Christians, Christians in name only, live the same way. Living, they are dead in their sins. And their profession of Christianity is ultimately to promote themselves, to make them look good in the eyes of others, to say, I'm not going to hell, look, I believe in Jesus, but their life doesn't reflect it at all. So they're, all, they're more about preserving their own reputation before men than glorifying God in the highest with their whole selves. Well, rather than go for honored places, Jesus tells the invited guests, do not take the place of honor, but for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him, and he who invited you will both come, invited you will both, they will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace you proceed to occupy the last place. What he's saying there, what Jesus is telling the Pharisee and his guests, is that their self-righteousness will backfire. Beloved, if you're walking in self-righteousness this morning, guess what? If you're putting on a fake facade of Christianity, it's going to backfire eventually. If not before men, then definitely before God. It's going to backfire. You're living a charade with the aim of making yourself look better, Pharisee of making yourself look better before men, and it's going to backfire. Their lie to themselves that they were holy even though they weren't living by the Word of God, it's going to blow up in their faces. And rather than be honored by God as things stood, when they stood before God, they would be disgraced. Beloved, it is better to go and recline in the last place, Jesus said, because then the host may come to you and say, Friend... Move up higher. Like a, what the price is right, come on down. 
Except it's a whole lot better than getting to spin a wheel. Because then everyone will see you. Not moving yourself up on your own accord, by the way. But being honored by the host. Being honored by the king. Being moved up by him. It's pretty much exactly what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. Do not claim honor in the presence of the king. And do not stand in the place of great men. For it is better that it be said to you, come up here. Than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. It is better to be considered nothing on this earth and be a citizen of the kingdom of God, beloved, than it is to be the king of the earth and yet a citizen of hell. And false teachers and false teaching appeal to people more than Jesus' call to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me, follow him. But while Pharisees and false teachers might be praised by men for doing it right because it looks successful in the eyes of men, what does Paul write in 1 Corinthians 26 and and the following verses? Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble to whom the Lord will say, friend, move up higher. The invited guest at the meal needed this rebuke. Religious people today need to hear this rebuke. Many in the church today need to hear this rebuke. As for the host, the Pharisee who invited him in the first place, Jesus doesn't leave him hanging. He says, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. That is, don't exclusively invite. You can invite them, but don't exclusively invite them. Otherwise, they may invite you in return and that will be repayment. You will have your reward in full, in other words, like Jesus says in other places. You'll have your reward in full. They'll repay you. Reciprocity. You'll have your reward in full. Much better. You you scratch my back, I scratch yours. Much better than to do what Jesus said in verses 13 and 14. Look at them again. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. The poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. They are the ones the Pharisees turned their eyes away from. They are the ones... They didn't want to be a, they, they couldn't do anything to help the Pharisees. They couldn't do anything to better the Pharisees' reputation. They couldn't do anything tangibly to help the Pharisees on this earth. Obviously, they're not as holy as we are. They don't look like we do. They don't smell like we do. They're not as rich as we are. They're not whatever, whatever, whatever. They don't belong at the adult table. Little did the Pharisees know that they were the poor. They were the blind. They were the lame. They were the crippled. They were the spiritually destitute. They were the ones in need of grace from the host, who in this case is the Lord. And you are too. 
And so am I. Thanks be to God, we are exactly the kind of people Jesus came to save. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus it will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals. It's resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. A highway will be there, a roadway, and it will be called what? The highway of holiness. And the unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for him who walks that way. And fools will not wander on it. No lion will be there, nor any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk there. And the ransom to the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion with everlasting joy upon their heads. They will find gladness and joy and sighing will flee away. And beloved, Jesus Christ is the only one who makes this happen. Jesus Christ is the one who brings this to pass. For who? For for those, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those bloated with the dropsy of pride and self-righteousness Whether you're a Pharisee, a modern day false teacher, or sitting in a church pew this morning, those bloated with the dropsy of pride and self-righteousness won't be able to fit through the narrow door that Jesus is in Luke 13. They won't fit and so they won't enter the kingdom of God. But those who humble themselves those devastated by their own sinfulness, their own fallenness. Those who come into the meal and take the last place because they know they're not worthy to be there to begin with. They're not worthy to be in the presence of the honored one. Those who come humbly will hear the king say to them, friend, move up higher. And so I say to you this morning, I say to me this morning, humble yourself. Repent of your sins. Come to Jesus with a desperate faith, an obedient faith that walks the highway of holiness. And Jesus will pull you bloated and all through the narrow door Himself. Let's pray. Father, You sent Your Son into the world and He humbled Himself just by taking on flesh. He humbled Himself 
even more than that because he, he became like a slave. And then he humbled himself even more than that by willingly being placed on the cross where he bore your wrath against all sins for all time for all who will ever repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And because of that, everyone who does humble themselves is forgiven their sins and exalted with eternal life in your kingdom. Because Jesus is victorious over the grave, He is victorious over sin, He is victorious over death, He is victorious. And so I pray, Father, that you might show each of us the futility of living for the praise of men, futility of living for our own reputations, the futility of the fleeting worth of self-righteousness. But instead, Father, make us to see the glory of your kingdom and how much better it is to receive honor from you than to find it ourselves. We thank you, Father, and I pray that we will give you all the praise and that we'll do so in the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.